Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my co-host, attorney and sometime Republican strategist, Jay Carson. We start the show with the politics of Hurricane Harvey, which this week deluged Houston, the fourth largest city in the United States, and surrounding areas. Now, there are at least 46 deaths related to the storm at this point, and there's been massive displacement of people and property damage. Uh, estimates of total economic costs of the storm are really all over the map. I've, I've seen ranges anywhere from $40 billion to $190 billion. Now, now, of course, weather isn't inherently political, and but there are definitely some important political aspects to discuss here. So, Jay, if it's okay with you, I thought we could start with the government's emergency response and then President Trump's personal response, and after that, maybe talk about uh, flood insurance and uh, some issues that have come up with immigrants actually fearing deportation if they went to shelters or attempted to receive uh, any sort of uh, uh, storm aid. Sure, that's that sounds uh, that sounds good. But I, I think we should also say, of course, obviously, um, our our thoughts are with those affected, and uh, um, this is this is a, a time when um, uh, you know this can be a, a moment for national unity to support the uh, the folks affected, and uh, we'd encourage our listeners, just as we always encourage uh, you to support us. Uh, maybe this week, uh, go support uh, the Red Cross or uh, other uh, organizations offering uh, relief and help to those affected in, in the Houston area. Absolutely. You know, Jay, I, I wanted to point out to everyone that before the show started, Jay, now Jay, of course, is our, you know, as our uh, resident conservative and people tend to think of conservatives sometimes as cold hearted. But Jay was the one who said, hey, we should say something and encourage people to do that. And and, uh, you know, so he shows to go. Jay is actually a compassionate conservative and there are lots of them out there. But uh, OK, so. Uh, yeah, so let's start with the government's response. What's your what's your sense of uh, uh, what's your take on how things have gone? Certainly, they've gone a lot better than they went after uh, oh, Katrina, for instance. Yeah, I would say, and this this seems to be the response across the board, left left and right, is that uh, things are being managed and, and as well as can as well as can be. I mean, in any disaster type situation. Uh, it's things aren't going to run perfectly or smoothly because that's that's why they call it a disaster. Um, but uh, in this case, it seems that the resources were ready and in place uh, and are, are got in there as, as quickly as possible. Um, uh, so I, I I think generally the the response has been, you know, both from the local level up to the federal level and the coordination in between seemed to have worked a lot better than it did in Katrina. Um, some of those, some of those reasons may be, uh, actually, you know, policy driven, legislative driven, uh, there was, there was, uh, legislation in the wake of Katrina, uh, that allowed sort of, uh, the federal government to become involved earlier, uh, as before there had to be sort of a request made and a process made before FEMA could actually, uh, get going. Um, and that seems to be helpful, but I think also just, it just might be a learning curve of, uh, having seen what what happened in Katrina with uh, you know failure of coordination uh, and and expecting uh, expecting stuff to 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 get worse not better um, uh, I, I think has has been a you know that's that's been a positive learning experience and the number of of deaths and displacements and just the other um, 
the, the additional problems that we, we saw in Katrina, we, we're not seeing in Houston. Yeah. So I think that's important to point out because we often, we so often focus on failures of government and and gosh, gosh knows there's there's plenty of stuff to focus on there. But, you know, this is an example of how, where, you know, government has actually learned from the past and, and response has gotten better. And when, when government does things like this, you know, we should say, Hey, this is a, this is a important critical function of government. And it looks like that uh, FEMA and associated groups are, are really doing a heck of a job and, and we should, well, I'm happy to be able to point that out. Yeah. yeah. And the other, the other thing I would point out, and this is maybe where I might wade into trouble with, with some folks, uh, there is also, I think there's, there's, um, uh, just a difference in attitude, a difference in culture between, uh, a city like New Orleans and a city like Houston and New Orleans before Katrina, uh, had been plagued with, with various types of inefficiencies, corruptions and so forth. Uh, and, and when you, you brought to bear a disaster that really just exacerbated those problems. Um, Houston, I, I think had been sort of a, uh, well-oiled machine beforehand, uh, and, and is, you know, in a better position to, to deal with these things quickly. And that's, that, that's something that's, I guess, tough to, to quantify. No, I think that um, I think it's a fair but, point. But I think there's something there. Yeah, as a general rule, uh, uh, a good non-corrupt government is is helpful across the board, of course, as, but especially in disasters. So yeah, absolutely. I don't think that's at least I don't think that should be controversial. You know, but before we get to President Trump's personal response, uh, we want to thank our first sponsor today, Dollar Shave Club, the smarter choice. Get a great shave at a great price delivered conveniently right to your door with Dollar Shave Club. Now, Jay, you know, you know, Richard Nixon, right? You know, of Richard Nixon. Of course I, I heard do. of him. Not I remember personally. him. Yeah. Well, okay. Now there's a connection here. Now I'm sure, you know, Richard Nixon is one of those guys with pretty serious five o'clock shadow. And it, I, you know, it had kind of the effect of making him look, you know, slightly disreputable. Right. And I'm sure you also know that that Richard Nixon nearly won the 1960 presidential election against uh, against uh, John F. Kennedy. And in fact, to this day, some conservatives say he did win it and that Kennedy was only elected through the, uh, the, certain, the graveyards of uh, Cook County. Exactly. Yeah. It's Chicago. They're the Democratic machine. Now, you know, and so in putting together a show today, I was thinking, you know, I wonder. Maybe if Richard Nixon had Dollar Shave Club, he could have pulled out a squeaker in 1960 because, you know, appearances actually can really make a difference at the margins for politicians in elections. And there's actually been real political science, social science research done that demonstrates this. And and so that got me thinking about, you know, various counterfactuals. You know, let's say Nixon wins in 1960. That probably means no Watergate, no post, no post-Watergate liberal surge in Congress, no Carter presidency which probably also likely means no Reagan revolution. And, and we're talking U.S. political history would be completely different and all because Richard Nixon didn't have Dollar Shave Club. Right. So, you know, I, did, I mean, wow. And you know what? Now, going back to the present, what I love about Dollar Shave Club is you get a, this great close shave at a, a great price. It's really convenient, right? You have those blades and that, that great shave butter delivered right to your door automatically. Don't have to worry about remembering to, to get refills and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and for a limited time, new members get their first month of the executive razor with the tube of their Dr. Carver shave butter for only $5 with free shipping. And after that, your razors are just a few bucks a month. It's a $15 value for only five bucks. And in that first month's box, you get this nice weighty 
handle and a full cassette that has four cartridges and the tube of that shave butter. And after your first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at the regular price, no hidden fees, no commitments, and you can cancel whenever you like, but I bet you're not going to want to. So you can only get this offer exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. Don't be like Richard Nixon. Get a good shave with Dollar Shave Club. Okay. Moving on. Uh, yeah, I, I was wondering if you, you wondered how I would kind of pull together Richard Nixon. I, I, no, I figured it out. I, and then I, I just wanted the quick digression to let our listeners know that, you know, when we first met, I recall you had a Richard Nixon tan rested and ready uh, T-shirt. That's right. That you used to wear uh, pretty frequently. That's right. Absolutely. I remember that T-shirt uh, <laughs> with great fondness. Uh, okay. So we, we were, to get back to, to the hurricane response, we were going to talk about President Trump's personal response to it. What's your take on that, Jay? How, how did he do? Because of course I should say that presidents are expected in these times to kind of unite the country and that sort of thing and be this sort of exercise, this symbolic role, which is something that Donald Trump has, I think it's fair to say, struggled with to, to say the right. least. And, when, and again, when, and which should be sort of the easier part of the job. One would think. Um, no, I think he's done well. I mean, he's he's making his second trip down there now. And and there's also an idea of, of presidents uh, ought not to be seen as as too intrusive or or, uh, you know, just showing up for the, the photo op. And, and that's that's a little bit of a difficult balance uh, because I you know, there's to, to a certain extent, there's there's not much Donald Trump personally can do. Uh, for the folks uh, in Houston, but but his visiting uh, and visiting in person, I think, is a symbolic response. It is it is is important symbolically. If you recall, um, uh, a lot of the the criticism leveled at George Bush was, you know, he flew over the the area in a helicopter, um, which which on the one hand seemed to be a sensible thing to do, uh, given the you know the difficulty getting getting in and out and and so forth and security concerns. Um, but it, it turned out to be, uh, you know, politically, uh, dreadful for him, uh, because it, it had that sort of disconnected, oh, he's just looking at this from, from literally, uh, 500 feet and, and not actually there on the ground. So, so I think to the extent that, uh, Trump has visited already and he's going back, I think that's good. I think he's, um, this will sound strange from Trump, but it's, it's sort of enough of a light touch that he's not, uh, there uh, all the time and showboating, it doesn't appear to be. Um, that that may come, but <laughs> this at this point, I'd say he's he's handled it well. Yeah, it wasn't a perfect response. I mean, he is after all Donald Trump, and he couldn't, you know, uh, resist just sort of instinctively commenting on the size of the crowd and that sort of thing that came out to see him. Because in Donald Trump's mind, everything's at least a, a little bit about him, or if not entirely about him. But but I agree with you. You know, uh, Donald Trump handled this, I think, fairly well. We should also point out that he pledged to donate a million dollars, or at least uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders says that he pledged to donate a million dollars to uh, to hurricane relief. And, and you know, I was kind of curious what that meant. And in terms of percent of net worth, if you believe Forbes's account of his net worth and not Donald Trump's account of his net worth, which I think you say, <laughs> I mean, it's it's like an average American donating slightly over five hundred dollars, which is, you know, it's a, it's a right. pretty, that's not that is not insignificant. Exactly. So now, of course, we should also point out that Donald Trump has a history of saying he's going to donate things personally and they come from the Trump Foundation. It's not actually his money. He also has a history of saying he's going to donate money and not actually donate it. I'm sure the media is going to be all over this, but let's take him at his word for, you know, for right now. And, you know, I think that is a, that is a 
reasonable, you know, uh, impressive, not impressive, but it's certainly a, a decent gesture. And so, you know, good for Donald Trump. Yeah. Now, yeah. Again, now, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt yeah. for the time being and absolutely. And uh, see how it, see how it plays out. Now he also promised that there would be a relief package that would get through Congress. That would be quick. Uh, and that would be great. And now, you know, when I heard that, I thought, well, we'll see, but and also, I thought it'll be interesting to see how the Texas delegation votes on this, because, of course, back in 2012, uh, all but one of the 25 Republicans in the Texas uh, congressional delegation voted against the relief package for uh, Sandy. So we'll we'll see how that changes, certainly. Uh, well, well, I think in, in fairness, we should point out they they did vote for a relief package. Uh, they voted against the final relief package, which included a lot of other stuff. Uh, beyond Sandy. Um, well, we should also so point out. I, I, yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that's a that's a defensible well, vote. Well, we should also um, point out that a lot of the claims, I mean, especially claims from uh, Ted Cruz in particular about how much of the Sandy relief package was uh, was uh, whatever you want to call it, fluff or not related spending, actually turned out to be false. And so uh, uh, again, we'll we'll see what happens. But uh, uh, you know, I think with any package, people try to put things in that are ne- not necessarily strictly related, but uh, uh, but certainly. Uh, these sort of things become much more urgent when it's actually your state and your area. Yeah. And it's a lot easier well, and, to say. And when I'm going to I'm going to push back just a little on the cruise thing because I, I think it is important to to look at that package, the the Hurricane Sandy package, included a lot of things that weren't emergency relief of here's things we're going to fix right now. Uh, you can say yes, they are tangentially related uh, because we're going to make infrastructure repairs that things were probably going to be made anyway. Uh, down the line, a couple years down the road, there were there was uh, aid to uh, Alaskan fisheries, um, which were not impacted by Hurricane Sandy, but had been designated a disaster area. So, well, it's kind of disaster, but but again, there was a lot of this, and and the temptation is is real for any any party of hey, we're spending money, let's add this in. Um, uh, so I, I'm I'm look, I get what you're saying. I I wouldn't say that that the cruise thing is. Is untrue though. I I think I think there's I think there's some room to to debate on that, um, but but you're right. I think I think by all estimates, regardless, whatever Congress is going to do, and I think they, they will definitely do something. Uh, it's likely going to be bigger than the the Sandy aid package. Well, I think the reason people push back specifically on Cruz is he he specifically said. Uh, two thirds of that bill had nothing to do with Sandy, and that's just simply that is an untrue statement. That is that's a lie. Uh, and if you take a look at the Sandy package, now you could say that uh, a percentage of that bill did not did not focus was not, on was immediate not relief. Was relief directed right. to Sandy? Yeah. But calling it pork that had nothing to do with it—that's you know that that's a false statement. And we need to call out politicians on both sides when they make just simply untrue statements. So uh, that's I guess that's why a lot of people are pushing back against Cruz and pointing out his hypocrisy now. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's a fair thing to do. So now moving on, you know, other thing I want to talk about in relation to this, and, and this maybe hasn't gotten quite as much coverage, but I think it's an important issue. Uh, something people tend not to think about a whole lot, flood insurance. Now, as, as uh, many, many listeners might know at this point, uh, there is a national flood insurance program. And this was a government program that got started up in the late 1960s. And the reason it got started up is private insurers found that it was just too risky to insure for this kind of massive flood damage. And so they weren't able to either stop 
providing coverage or the premiums were so high that they just became unaffordable. And so the federal government came in and created this program so people could actually afford flood insurance. And and so that's how now technically, if you are in one of these 100 year floodplains, which just basically means a one in 100 chance so that the name is a little misleading, you are technically required to get this insurance. But it, it turns out no one actually checks on this and there's no actual penalty for not getting it, except when you're flooded, then you don't have the insurance and so forth. So something except like then the government will come and bail you out anyway. Exactly. So, you know, what do you think about this, this plan? I mean, you're, you're a little more libertarian leaning than I am, certainly. Uh, you know, in part, I say, well, maybe there's a good reason why people shouldn't build in these areas. And, and, you know, you can say, I think from a more libertarian standpoint, if people come in and they build in these areas and government perhaps encourages them at least indirectly to right. build in these By areas. Essentially subsidizing, subsidizing the yeah relief or then provided relief if they don't apply for the subsidized insurance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, we're, we're talking again, you know, the, the damage here is, you know, 40 to $190 billion. Now, not, um, the, the bulk of that is not going to be coming from taxpayers or anything, but obviously this is billions of dollars. And certainly a libertarian analysis, I would think, would be, well, if, you know, if government hadn't, you know, if there weren't this implicit guarantee that we're going to uh, bail you out in a sense, uh, then there wouldn't be as much construction, as much building in these areas, and therefore the ultimate cost would be you know, considerably lower. And in fact, there've been some analysis saying that, you know, uh, FEMA has actually spent more money, so much money on, uh, on, uh, relief in some of these areas that it would have been cheaper for them to just buy these structures outright and just be <laughs> done with it essentially. And so, you yeah. know, I mean, that sounds, that sounds a little That sounds like a really cold thing that right. I would say. But, but let's, but, but let's consider this because this is about the only time we're ever going to talk about this is the only time these sort of issues get any sort of uh, get any sort of focus, you know, in politics. So, you know, what do you think about that? Is that the sort of thing that that, you know, seems like a reasonable idea to you to kind of because some people, of course, are saying, well, we need to just enhance these programs and make it easier for people to get flood relief and so forth. But it seems to me the libertarian response would be to say, um, no, we need to go in the other direction. Yeah, I, I, my sense would be I if 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 it were up to me, uh, and this would be the the other problem is just the the optics of this thing. When the issue comes up, it's always an absolute, almost impossible issue to make or impossible argument to make, just because there is such a political necessity. You see, people who have lost their homes have lost everything, uh, and then someone comes along saying, "Well, we ought not to to bail them out." Uh, that's that's a you know very much an impossible political argument argument to make. Uh, although again, you can, I'll tell you there, there's grumbling in, in places and I'm, uh, this is after Katrina, um, and, uh, maybe a little less so after Houston, but it hasn't been that long yet uh, of, of folks who don't live in flood, you know, uh, prone regions, uh, saying, look, we're, we're essentially subsidizing this, uh, either through the flood insurance program or through, uh, a bailout. And, uh, it's, you know, these, these folks have choices and can build in costs to do that. My, my thought would be, I mean, maybe we start going to the insurance market and, and, uh, taking the steps back, back from the flood insurance program. Cause, cause at this point, nobody offers flood insurance, uh, except the federal government. And I think the, the market might be better able 
to to do calculate the risks and rewards and so forth uh, in providing insurance than they were back in the 60s. Uh, I, I think there's something to that. I think there's also something to the idea that uh, in places like Houston, you you do have uh, a lot of big building, a lot of a lot of money that can afford private flood insurance. And and look, the the actuaries can figure out. You know, you said the the hundred year flood, the one in a hundred chance. Uh, if you need to spread that out farther over other policyholders, uh, you know, sort of the one in five hundred uh, to to do that, I think that still makes probably more economic sense uh, than having a a federal program that. Uh, one, most people don't sign up for, even though you see commercials for it all the time. Uh, and then two, it turns out to be kind of pointless anyway, because the government will come in and, and bail out afterwards. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I see your point, though. I think that uh, I'm a little less optimistic about the ability to predict this stuff, especially given the uh, given how our climate or given how weather patterns seem to be uh, a lot less uh, predictable, especially severe weather. And now the extent to which various people are going to attribute that to, to uh, climate change certainly will differ. I think there's a clear connection there. Other people may. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Mike, Mike, there was the, the this was. We had been been living through sort of a a historic lull in uh, hurricane and major storm activity, and this was sort of a regression to the mean of of what we would typically expect. No, I'm just saying, just um, in general, but, for but, severe. I'm talking I, I, about. I want to have you on the record saying that we can't really predict the weather uh, uh, down the road. But go ahead. No, I'm, I'm saying that we can't predict severe severe weather events. That's a different thing. Obviously, weather and climate are two different things. And of course, you know that, obviously. But, but of I, course. But of you, course. I, I, I get what Except you're Except when saying. it's bad weather. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on to our, to our next story. Uh, but before, before we do that, we want to thank our second sponsor for today, Blue Apron. Blue Apron, of course, is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the United States. And their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. And, you know, it even works for me and I am certainly no one's idea of a cook. And they do it all with super fresh, high quality ingredients. They partner with local farms, fisheries and ranchers across the country and they source ingredients to support a sustainable food system. That's really important to me, certainly. Now I know Jay, you get Blue Apron meals, and you know I've been—I I haven't asked you this yet, but I'm curious. So, do you actually do some of the cooking, or as a conservative, do you perpetuate those traditional gender stereotypes and leave the cooking to your wife and girls? I—I I actually do almost all the cooking. Wow. Okay. Uh, in, in How fact, about that? In, in in my house, yeah, uh, and uh, the majority of the shopping, um, which I is which is another reason I appreciate Blue Apron. Uh, is because uh, so often shopping, it's it's uh, you're you're sort of hurried, you're rushed. What ingredients do I need? What am I getting? Where am I getting it? Uh, and and it 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 adds to some frustration where you're ready to make something and realizing you've forgotten an ingredient. Uh, and with Blue Apron, obviously, you don't have that because they give you all the ingredients. Um, but no, I, I don't perpetuate those those gender stereotypes. Uh, so well, I'm glad uh, to hear that. Much, much much as the left would like to push push that upon uh, me and other conservatives. Uh, I am, I am happy to cook. That's, that's, that's good to hear it. And, and you get to cook some, some great meals with Blue Apron. And listen to some of their upcoming meals, great stuff. Soy glazed pork and rice cake with bok choy and marinated green beans, skillet vegetable chili with cornmeal and cheddar drop biscuits and garlic butter shrimp and corn with green bean salad and roasted purple tomatoes. And it's a really great value too. All of this less than $10 per person per meal delivered right to your door. And you know, Blue Apron knows that you're 
busy. And so now they're offering this new thing, 30 minute meals. And these meals are made with the same flavor, the same farm fresh ingredients that you know and love. And they're ready in 30 minutes or less. Now check out this week's menu and you can get your first three meals free with free shipping. All you have to do is go to blueapron.com slash TPG. That's blueapron.com slash TPG. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, so moving on, you know, let's talk a little bit about uh, President Trump's ban on transgender troops in, in the U.S. military. And we talked about that in last week's show. But since then, there have been a few significant developments. First, Secretary of Defense Mattis announced that he was commissioning a study on the effect of transgender troops and saying that no transgender troops would be discharged until the study is completed. Now, this has been reported at least— Which is sort of what everyone said should have been done in the first place. Well, yeah, exactly. We said that last week. You know, and in some parts of the media, this was reported as Mattis going against the president, which just isn't the case because—and I've got—am I I defending the president? I guess a little bit here. This is a weird show for me. But he explicitly gave the Secretary of Defense wide latitude in determining how to deal with current— currently serving transgender troops. So, Jay, I'm guessing that based on, you know, what you said and what we said last week, that you think that uh, that the Secretary of Defense is doing the right thing here. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, again, as we've said before, these types of, of decisions uh, where it comes to things like military cohesiveness and unit cohesiveness, that sort of thing, um, I think politicians ought to defer to the military uh, on those on those decisions, and, and it's sort of odd that again Trump uh, wants to be very deferential to uh, the military in so many so many areas, uh, but yet sort of jumps the gun on on this transgender piece, which uh, again was on no one's radar and and no one's wish list, at least not that I'm I'm aware of. Uh, so I think Mattis is doing the right thing, um, and uh, I think if if things play out as I expect. Uh, there will be sort of a, a it'll take a long time to get that report done. Uh, and the report, the, the results will be sort of inconclusive and then they'll need to do another study or wait further until further action. So, uh, my sense is that, uh, Mattis is essentially saying, uh, listen, if you're transgendered in the military right now, um, uh, you know, don't worry, stay put. Yeah, you know, there, there are a couple of ways to look at this. And I know you've, you've commented on the whole, the military is not uh, a place to do social experiments, that sort of thing. And and and, and I, I take your point, but I also think, you know, the question I think is, is one of uh, where do we put the uh, burden of proof or something like that? Now, I would say that if there is that, I would say that the default should be that anyone who meets the, uh, the, the physical you know, uh, mental, psychological requirements to serve in the military gets to serve unless there is clear evidence that their serving will degrade readiness. Now, a lot of, a lot of folks. That makes, that seems to make, that's, it makes sense to me. Yeah. And so that way the default would be that you get to serve. We don't care if you're, if you're, if you're gay, if you're transgender, if you, if you, you know, worship trees and rocks and have whatever, whatever, whatever you get to serve unless there's now, but there were some reason not to exactly. It's some, now some people would say it's the opposite that if we're going to let people in, as, as some would put it, then we should make sure that there is no negative effect. Now that's a lot harder thing to sort of demonstrate. And, and in part, I mean, clearly, I think there are just some groups that are uncomfortable with uh, the LGBTQ community and they don't want them integrated into 
various aspects of society. They, they don't want that sort of uh, essentially approval, just like, you know, 50 or 60, 70 years ago, people felt that way about minorities in, in the military. And so there is, there is certainly in some, you know, in, in some elements, there's uh, an animus toward these, uh, these groups that's driving this, I think. And I think that's why President Trump, who I do not think really has any issues actually with LGBTQ people based on his pre-presidential, you know, views and statements and so forth. I think he's playing a little bit the parts of his base here, as you pointed out, kind of jumping the gun on this when in other aspects, he's very deferential to the military. Well, here's, and this is, I'm going to just ask you to weigh in on the personal question because you were in the military. And uh, again, I'd probably qualify that in those days, you were sort of a different person than you are now. But what what would your your thoughts be as someone you know who is currently serving on uh, a decision to either bring in transgendered uh, people or keep them out? I wouldn't have a problem at all. I say if you can if you can do your job and you know that's that's perfectly fine. I don't care what you do with your your free time or anything like that. I mean, it's not like. It's not like, you know, the, the same the same rules in a uniform code of military justice apply to everyone. As long as you abide by those rules, what you do with your with your free time, your off duty time. I don't I don't care what you do. I don't think it I don't think it should matter even a, even a little bit, you know. So so I am I am all in favor of transgender troops uh, uh, serving. So, you know, there's what, what would what would. OK, no, no go ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, what what do you think would be the sense of, of, again, looking back, the people you served with, the attitude then versus now? Well, you know, I don't know. It, it never really, it never really came up. Certainly, uh, and 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 there are definitely people in the military who are uh, homophobic. Uh, there's no question. Uh, there's a lot of, at least back when I was serving, and I'm sure that's probably still true today, that there was a lot of language and so forth that pretty clearly was indicated that there was some discomfort with that sort of thing, slurs and that sort of thing, you know, that that, that you, you tend to hear. But but again, you know, I, I think that some people would say, well, see, that means that it makes people uncomfortable and then we shouldn't do it. I would say just the opposite. Like, for instance, uh, I felt like one of the really valuable things to me for being in the military, I grew up in a, a kind of a typical white, lower middle class, uh, you know, American suburb in Cleveland. So I wasn't exposed to a lot of, you know, minorities. And all of a sudden I go into the military and I get a lot of this exposure and it really gave me, uh, I mean, I didn't feel like I was, you know, necessarily racist or anything before, but it gave me kind of a a feeling of, I I don't know, like, uh, I think it was just really good for me to be exposed to people. It broadened your horizon. Exactly. Picture of the bigger world. And and I thought that was incredibly valuable. And I think that, you know, I think that was a great thing. And so I think the same thing holds true, whether it's, you know, because, I mean, there's been plenty of studies showing that people tend to have these sort of implicit biases they're not even aware of, they're unconscious and so forth. And I think exposure to people who look different, who have different views and so forth, I think that's a really valuable thing. And that's one of the things I love about the military is it does give people that exposure. And I think it's, uh, I think it can be a, a strength of our country. And so I actually, I really encourage that. So now another development I wanted to mention is several lawsuits that have been filed against the administration for the ban, one by the ACLU and one another by Lambda Legal. And 
Both lawsuits allege that the ban is a violation of the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses of the Constitution, and they are seeking to have the courts block the ban from going into force. So I wanted to ask you, Jay, because, of course, you are the attorney amongst us. What do you think about these claims and how would you expect this to play out? Well, you know, in in this case, I think the courts will probably take a look at they'll probably apply the standard we've been talking about, that. Uh, there ought to be sort of a presumptive right uh, to do this unless uh, the military, in this case, could make some sort of a rational uh, argument uh, to the contrary. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a rational argument to be made, um, but no one's really made it yet. And, and I think what something the court would look to are things like this Mattis study uh, and prior studies that have been done. Uh, you know, uh, is there is there any evidence to suggest that uh, allowing transgendered persons to serve in the military affects unit cohesion, readiness, preparedness, the ability of the military to do its job. Um, you know, this this would typically be something that you would look at that at that highly deferential standpoint. Is there a rational relation between uh, what's being proposed and the ends uh, that are being sought? The ends being sought, uh, presumably, to have a more efficient, uh, better operating military. And I think that's that's going to be that's going to be a tough. A tough case to make, even with that deferential standard. Um, so, so we'll see how it plays out. But I, I you know, my sense, my sense is this is this is going to be uh, um, given the record, and we don't see we don't have the whole record yet. Uh, I think it's going to be tough for uh, Trump to defend. Yeah, and I think you know what makes it even tougher is that cases of this type are subject to uh, heightened scrutiny, which means that the government needs to do more than just say, "Well, we think this is you know having more than just a simple rational logical basis." It has to be really uh, substantially related to an important government interest, and that's a that's a bigger burden of proof to meet. And there, I don't really think that there's, uh, there's any, you know, significant evidence that they can meet that burden. So yeah, I, I tend to, I tend to agree with you on that certainly. So well, I know I, th- I, th- I think it would be an interesting question. This is a, a purely legal really in the weeds about whether it's a heightened scrutiny or whether it's a, um, uh, rational basis on this. Um, I, I don't know that you've got uh, if being transgendered is in of itself, uh, you know, entitles you a fundamental right, or if you intended, you have a, a fundamental right uh, to serve in the military in a certain capacity. Um, those are all questions that get sorted out. But but either way, I, I think it's I think it's tough sledding for the Trump administration. And again, I'd go back to if if the idea was this is what you really wanted to do. Uh, then, then what you should have done is is build the case beforehand before you issue the order. Yeah, that's not really uh, that's not really what this this administration does. But yeah, I think I, I think you're right. So, okay, well, let's move on and talk a little bit about sanctuary cities. You know, we've talked about them in the past, and although those are those largely democratic enclaves that try to protect immigrants from what they see as unwarranted harassment and unfair treatment by the federal government, and this week. A federal judge in and what, what others see as enforcement of federal exactly. law. Exactly. That's why I said is what they see as. So, <laughs> but but this week a federal judge in San Antonio mm. stopped the state of Texas from enforcing their new law regarding sanctuary cities in the state. Now the law, uh, the Texas law, states that local officials may not adopt, enforce, or endorse any policy limiting the enforcement of immigration bans. And the law also allows police to question the immigration status of anyone they detain or arrest 
and it imposes fines, jail time, and potential removal of office from officials who don't comply. Now, the judge in this case, Orlando Garcia, wrote that the plaintiffs were likely to succeed when the case goes to trial, not at least on the grounds that the law, as he put it, clearly targets and seeks to punish speakers based on their viewpoint on local immigration enforcement policy. And he also had concerns that the law was unconstitutionally vague. So there are at least two grounds here. And Jay, uh, what do you think about this? Uh, well, I guess, will this law stand and, and should it stand? Uh, so I think this is sort of a political jump ball or a, a judicial uh, jump ball here is what the the uh, Court of Appeals does. And uh, it, it may well, well, I guess we have to get through the, the actual trial first. So we'll we'll see what evidence is, is produced then. Um, but uh, my sense is the whole sanctuary city issue uh, is something that's that's going to to have a political resolution uh, one day or another and, and probably later rather than sooner. Um, but, but I, I think it's, it's, you know, sooner or later, this country is going to have a, uh, reformed immigration policy. And I think it'll be dealt with in, in that, uh, and there will, there will be pressure on, uh, on cities to either, uh, abide with that policy or, or not. So, um, we'll see. I, I, I think, um, uh, again, the, We'll, we'll let it play out in this court. And it's also going to play out in a number of other courts, too, and, and likely uh, get the Supreme Court. But hopefully we have some immigration uh, reform that really changes the landscape before we get there. OK, well, I think at least in part when in focusing on this law, I think there's one thing that uh, I disagree entirely to jump all on whenever whenever a law uh, prohibits one to adopt a certain viewpoint. That to me runs that that's pretty clearly obviously unconstitutional. So if the Texas law well, sure. just no, said no, that, yeah, that's that's yeah, adopting a viewpoint. Exactly. So uh, I mean, that clear, I think that's a pretty. You're right. That's the, that's pretty clear on on that end. The law clearly does that, and I think it was absolutely boneheaded as a strategic thing for the Texas law to do that. I understand why they might do it, but that's that's a. That's an easy call. Now, as to the other part, I think I think there is a good argument that it's unconstitutionally vague because when you just say, well, you can't adopt or enforce, we'll put the endorse thing uh, aside, adopt or enforce a policy that limits the enforcement of immigration laws. What does that mean exactly in practice? That is awfully vague. And, you know, there are, there's plenty of precedent for for the courts overturning laws that are just even less vague right, than that. Right. So vague, vague for voidness is a, is a big thing. Although typically, um, you know, that comes up in, in the, it's more often applied in a criminal context in that, Hey, I can't really, you know, uh, avoid criminal context uh, or, or po- avoid a uh, criminal prosecution because I'm not really sure right. what this law prohibits me from doing. But, but that's a great point. But in this case, local officials are threatened with fines, jail time, or removal from office if they don't comply. So that is that kind of context. And so if you're a local official, say, well, you have a legitimate, you know, question here saying, well, what exactly violates this? And if I am subject to fines, jail time or removal from office, I think I think that goes right into that sweet spot there. So I think this is an example of just a horribly crafted law. I get what Texas was trying to do. And I think you could perhaps make a legitimate conservative argument against what sanctuary cities are doing. But I think this is just a, a really, really awful law just in terms of how it was drafted essentially you know no i I, i'd agree there just because look if you're going to draft a law you either want it to uh be something that will pass constitutional muster easily 
or uh, at least set up the argument that you want to have. Uh, set up your argument on the best grounds. And I, and I don't think this law sets up that argument on the best possible grounds. No, not at all. Not at all. All right. So it's time for what we're reading when we step back from the crazy pace in a news cycle and talk about, you know, more in-depth, thoughtful things that we might be reading, listening to, or watching. Um, so this week, I am recommending an interview that Sam Harris did on his Waking Up podcast with political scientist Charles Murray. And we've talked about Murray before on the show, uh, especially in the context of, I think it's safe to call the disgraceful actions of protesters at Middlebury College where he was prevented from speaking. And I know, Jay, that was something I think that you brought up uh, uh, pretty, you know, shortly after that yeah, happened. Yeah, a while ago, yeah. You know, and I think this is really important, especially for my friends on the on the left to listen to, because Sam Harris is certainly a person of the left. He's very kind of uh, strongly anti-Trump uh, and definitely a liberal. But, and Harris said, you know, he was very anti-Charles Murray, and he thought kind of where there's smoke, there's fire, and all these people that I like and trust say he's this awful person. But then he said, well, wait a second, maybe I should actually read what this guy wrote. And he actually picked up a copy of the bell curve and read it. And he said, wow, it turns out that Murray's work was taken way out of context by people who were essentially uncomfortable with what turned out to be pretty conservative conclusions, at least from a methodological standpoint, conservative. But these conclusions kind of pushed up against some uh, truths that many people on the left weren't interested in having challenged or questioned. And so I think this is really important because there are, there are some, some reasons why I just have issues with Sam Harris, but putting that aside, I think his kind of militant atheism is sort of a dividing and not a uniting thing. But, but on this, I think it's a great example of seeing someone in public having the courage to say, you know, I had these preconceived notions and I stopped and I challenged them. And then I actually read the work and I talked to the person and wow, I have significantly changed my mind. And if more of us did that more of the time, I think we would all be a lot better off. And so I would encourage people to, to check that out. It's a great example of that. And again, it's Sam Harris and the Waking Up podcast and the interview with Charles Murray. And we'll have the link on the, on the show notes. So Jay- uh, And I, I just, yeah, I just want to say, uh, to me, I am a big believer in always reading the original source. Whenever you get a story- that says uh, X, uh, you know, supposedly, you know, has said this based on when someone else is taking someone else's words, uh, go to the original source. Because again, I've, I've read the bell curve and some of his other, other works. Uh, and, and in many cases he really takes pains uh, to, to say, you know, that he's not, he's not making these, these broad uh, conclusions uh, and that I, I think there's many places in the bell curve. He said to the extent there are, there are differentials, and IQ measurements between race, those those are uh, really insignificant uh, uh, scientifically. Um, but but as you said, it's it's so much of it was taken out of out of context and and blown up. So uh, and and again, if you read if you read Murray's larger point, uh, he's very much about uh, we all need to come together uh, and uh, and work together and not to live in in communities that are diverse uh, and that, you know, one of his biggest concerns, especially his more recent works, uh, is sort of the self-segregation, um, not necessarily racially, but more class-based of, uh, of our country. Right. All right. So Jay, do you have a uh, selection for everyone this week? Oh man. I, you know, I'll tell you this, this was, this was a tough week for me to, to pick one thing. Um, uh, although I, I think, 
Peggy Noonan, and I know you're not necessarily a fan of Peggy. Oh Noonan. God, I hate Peggy um, Noonan. But, oh, but, but, anyway. but she has she has a talent for rising to the the level of this kind of thing. And she had a great piece uh, in in uh, I believe Thursday's uh, Wall Street Journal uh, about um, uh, our response to to the flooding. And it's one of those. This is it's going to come across to many as sort of a, a you know yay America cheerleading sort of sort of thing. But but sometimes we need that. Uh, and, and it's just the, you know, it talks about the, the sort of everyday heroism, um, of folks, uh, helping out their neighbors. Um, uh, and it doesn't matter of rich, poor, black, white, Latino, whatever, straight, gay. Um, it, it's the sense of, uh, we are all Americans and, uh, we, we will take care of one another as Americans and as, as neighbors. And I, I, you know, again, that, that message is probably a little corny and, um, but I, I think it's something we need to hear every now and again. And, and you know, the the terrible thing, uh, uh, you know, for all the the wreckage and the destruction and, and loss of life that these kind of disasters bring, uh, it does also shine a light on uh, <clears throat> something of our our national character uh, of those people who who step up and and uh, help each other out. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good point. And we will have a link to that on the show notes as well. All right. Well, that does it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you like what you heard and that you will check out today's sponsors, Dollar Shave Club, where new members get their first month of the executive razor with the tube of that Dr. Carver shave butter for only five bucks with free shipping. To get that, go to dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG and Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash TPG. A listener support is a huge help to us. We really do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. If you want to support the show without spending anything, we really appreciate it. If you could share this episode with your friends and followers and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter and leaving reviews on ratings and iTunes also really helps. And if you want to get in touch with us with a question, comment, correction, or whatever, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com, our Facebook page where you can message us and where you post stuff throughout the week. There's been some really good conversations this week. I noticed in particular, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. The show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.